This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle and today we are talking to Noelle McCarthy, a New Zealand-based Cork woman who has written a haunting memoir called Grand, Becoming My Mother's Daughter. I have lived for most of my adult life about as far as you can physically and geographically get from where I started. And, you know, I took pride in the idea of myself as a self-made woman and it was so humbling like it was such a land to go home to Cork at the end of her life and hear from the people who knew her best what she had done to sort of set my course that I never gave her and I never gave her any credit for it. We'll hear more from Noelle McCarthy in a moment but I just wanted to bring you one woman related story from the week. I was just really disappointed to hear the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar talk about abortion this week. We've had him on this podcast after appeal talking about his advocacy and his change of heart around abortion. We've praised him for being such a strong supporter of women's reproductive rights, even if he had to come on a bit of a journey to that, which many people did. Uh, So his remarks in an interview he did with the Irish Times this week were disappointing. Like I said, Jennifer Bray wrote the report giving the comments that Varadkar has said he would like to see fewer abortions taking place in Ireland. Varadkar said that while abortion is sometimes necessary, it is, quotes, not a good thing. He was speaking about the independent report, which has recommended a number of legislative changes, including an end to the mandatory three-day wait to access termination medication. Leo Varadkar said, I don't think anyone thinks that abortion is a good thing. It's sometimes necessary, but it's not a good thing. There are over 8,000 abortions happening in Ireland every year. I would like that number to be lower. Now, the way you do that is through much better sex education, the greater availability of contraception. That's why we're extending free contraception. You can also do it by making sure that emergency contraception is readily available. You need to do all those things. But I would like to see a greater exploration of that three-day issue. He said, is it the case that hundreds of abortions are being avoided as a result of it? Or is it the case that women would have gone ahead with it anyway? It hasn't been properly explored. Well, we actually do have some good information and useful information about that. Early this year, the Irish Family Planning Association released an analysis which showed that 447 clients who were eligible for early abortion care and for whom the outcome was known, 97.5% of those went on to get an abortion after the mandatory three-day wait. So it's not exactly what he's talking about it, but does tell his own story. And I, I just don't think it's helpful for someone who campaigns so brilliantly for abortion and the repeal of the eighth to now be looking at what is the right number of abortions. The right number of abortions, in my view, is the number of abortions that women need in all the different circumstances that abortions occur. And we should be focusing our energies on making sure there is wider access for those women, as we discussed on this podcast only a few weeks ago. Varadkar said he doesn't think 
anybody thinks abortion is a good thing, but that's not true. Abortion for me in my situation was a really good thing. Abortion is a fantastically freeing thing for so many women. It's a human right. It allows women to have autonomy over their bodies, over their destinies. Abortion is fantastic. Well, that's my opinion. And I don't think I'm the only person who thinks that. So I hope that maybe Leah Radker listens to the women and the men in those women's lives who know that for them, abortion was a good thing. I don't think it is just me because Sinead Kennedy of Action for Choice has commented on his remarks, uh, saying that the report compiled by Miss O'Shea was an independent report that centres on best medical practice and it highlights barriers women are facing to access abortion services, including the three day wait period. She said, so in that context, I think when we think about some of the comments that have been made by politicians, I suppose most concerningly those of the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, who talked about being both reluctant and uncomfortable to return to look at Ireland's abortion law, it's deeply troubling, she said. Uh, Not least because this report was actually commissioned by his own government and it was him as Taoiseach who actually signed into legislation this law that requires the independent review. So essentially what he's arguing is that he's reluctant and uncomfortable about his own government's policy which I think is a little worrying, particularly when he uses language like this kind of questions around the safeguards. And we've heard about many of the problems that things like the three day period have created for women and pregnant people who are trying to access services. And the other thing I would like to say about it all is that he's a doctor. Leo Varadkar is a medical professional and I think he should know better. I was looking at the website of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, where they're very clear about abortion and they don't talk about the right number of abortions or whether abortion is good or bad. They talk about it purely in healthcare terms. And I'll just read a few paragraphs from their website where they say abortion is an essential component of women's healthcare. Like all medical matters, decisions regarding abortion should be made by patients in consultation with their healthcare providers and without undue interference by outside parties. Like all patients, women obtaining abortion are entitled to privacy, dignity, respect and support. And it also goes on to say that where abortion is illegal or highly restricted, women resort to unsafe means to end unwanted pregnancies, including self-inflicted abdominal and bodily trauma, ingestion of dangerous chemicals, self-medication with a variety of drugs and reliance on unqualified abortion providers. And this is a really important statistic that I think we need to keep in our minds all the time, considering we are lucky now in, not lucky, but it's only right and proper now that we have abortion access in Ireland. But around the world, around 21 million uh, women use and obtain unsafe illegal abortion each year and complications from these unsafe procedures account for approximately 13% of all maternal deaths. That's nearly 50,000 women dying from unsafe abortions every year. And this is the part from their website that stood out for me in relation to Varadkar's comments. Sound health policy is best based on scientific fact and evidence-based medicine. The best healthcare is provided free of political interference in the patient-physician relationship. Personal decision-making by women and their doctors should not be replaced by political ideology. So I'm hoping that perhaps Radker might rethink his comments. I'd like to think he would, considering he has in the past been such a champion for women's rights. Now, you all know I'm a bit of a softie, a weeper, and it doesn't take much to set me off. But I read the memoir of our guest today and one passage set me off to the point where I was kind of incapacitated for a good 10 minutes. The memoir is called Grand, Becoming My Mother's Daughter, and it's by Noelle McCarthy. I'll read you the blurb of the book. 
Uh, Quick-witted and charismatic and generous, angry, vicious and hurt, in pubs all over Cork City, Noelle McCarthy's mother, Carol, rages against her life and everything she has lost. Soon after leaving college in the early years of the millennium, Noelle flees. Even on the other side of the world, with fame and success within her grasp, Noelle cannot escape an appetite for self-destruction. Life spirals out of control until she too is in danger of losing everything. At 30, she pulls back from the brink. Over a decade later, Carol is dying. Finally, it seems, mother and daughter will make peace, except Carol has no interest in admitting her own mortality. She will die as she lived, entirely on her own terms. If there is any reckoning to be done between past and present, Noelle will be doing it on her own. The book, as referenced there, begins on a visit home to Cork when she's waiting for her mother to die. Noelle has basically come back from New Zealand for a funeral, but her mother does not die, not then, and she's forced to return to New Zealand with her young daughter as COVID cases rose, eventually watching her mother's funeral on Zoom not long afterwards. While it is very much Noelle McCarthy's memoir, it's also a massive story about her mother and about their complex relationship, which brings to mind all sorts of complex mother-daughter relationships. So I began by asking Noelle, to tell me a bit about her mother, Carol. Sure. Thanks so much for having me on, Roisin. Um, My mum, Carol, force of nature is kind of a cliche, but, you know, that's how I think of her. When I was writing uh, sort of an afterword or an author's note for the book, I was trying to sum her up. And I think in the end, I said she was like the weather. You know, because with the effortless ability to affect everything you do, your plans for the day, you can't argue with with it. You can't you can't, you know, but it's a waste of time being angry with it. It's a force of nature and it's primal and it's huge. And, you know, I say, I think in that note, Mammy was the weather in our family and she was, you know, she set the temperature and um, and she set the conditions. And throughout my life, I think I had periods where I defined myself certainly in opposition to her. You know, she was a great antagonist for me as I was, especially like in those teen years and especially in my 20s when I think in retrospect, I was going around the place looking for an antagonist. You know, I wanted someone to square off against. Our relationship became a little mellowed out as I became a mother myself, you know, more recently in my life, but certainly for a lot of um, our shared experience, we had a pretty volatile relationship. I mean, that's her in relation to me. Her personality was very magnetic. She was a very charismatic person in her own right. And she was also a very kind person and a very brave person. And those were two qualities I think I didn't give her much credit for until I came, you know, until I sat down and actually started writing a book that I thought was going to be about me because I thought I was the most interesting person in my own life. <laughs> but to to my surprise, you know, the memoir that I was writing as soon as I wrote, I think the first sentence about her, like the first paragraph about her, she was there, you know, and the first meeting I had with my editor, Claire in New Zealand, the first bit of feedback she gave me was more, more of this, more of Caroline, you know, that's my mother's name. Um, so she, she's, she was definitely a powerful presence. 
Tell me more detail about growing up in Cork with her because there's, and I think it's not an unfamiliar thing for many people of a certain age uh, listening that you'd be dragged around pubs with, with parents. Like we all have the kind of anecdote of having the red lemonade and the packet of crisps and being told to wait in the car or whatever it was. But yours was a little bit more extreme than that. I mean, some of your early memories of your mother would be hard to do with being in pubs and hanging around waiting for her to, to do her drinking. Yeah. And, and again, you know, it was weird writing that stuff down at a distance of 30 or 40 years because it really is like a, the past is another country. You know, I can't imagine that happening now. A lot of my mom's drinking and socialising was what I kind of see as stolen time, which is the time in between saying you were going into Duns for the messages and being picked up as she was outside the funeral home at four o'clock, you know. And so my she memories worked there, didn't she? of that. She didn't work there. I had a cousin who worked there, oh, but yeah. it was a very handy place to be picked up if you were from the north side of the city. You know, it's a landmark and everyone knew how to get there and how to drive off from it. But, um, you know, my memories are of being in those inner city pubs in Cork City, in the lounges. You know, it was always a lounge. You'd rarely get women in a bar. And in the lounges of the bar with my mother and her friends, and I certainly wouldn't have been the only child in there. I mean, looking back now, I don't know, again, is it just my memory? But it feels like a bit of a crèche, you know, albeit like a crèche with a load of cigarette smoke hanging in the air. And, you know, that those times were the times when she got to see her friends and they got to get together and have, you know, whatever the time was they were having. But they were always they were always watching the clock as well, because, you know, they were always having to go back out into the day and do whatever they needed to do. You know, whether it was picking up other children who were coming out of school or, you know, getting collected. So I remember those times as being times when she was very intensely and vividly alive alive and happy with her friends, but always this underlying tension as well of, you know, the sort of sands in the hourglass running out when she'd have to go, you know, so the, the pints would be drunk quickly. Yeah, I mean, you actually liken your mother to a, a werewolf in the book, that kind of transformation, <laughs> sort of there's an excitement and a and a, a danger to her. She also loved in a quite a fierce way as well, I think, but then we would kind of turn into this monster with just one drop of drink. Tell us a bit about that, because that's, again, something you that was your normal, I suppose, you know, p- trying to pour your mother's uh, vo- you know, vodka down the sink and trying to, you know, make sense of it. Yeah. And one of the things I was trying to do with this book was write the the young me, the the child perspective from a child's perspective. You know, I was trying really hard not to overlay the adult on top of it and to sort of be too rational about things. I was trying to channel what it was like as a child. And for me, you know, as a child, my mother's drinking was this massive force of chaos in my life, you know, and it really did feel as though it was one sip. You know, that was all it took. I think I'd talk about, you know, the scientist with the beaker in his hands, throwing it back. And then suddenly, um, you know, Dr. Jekyll is Mr. Hyde. And that's what it felt like, you know, for me as a child watching her. And and then, of course, the irony was that as I grew up and my drinking progressed, it was like that for me, too. And so when I was, when I sat down and and was writing these times and these memories, it is, 
images of transformation and kind of monstrousness that came to mind. I mean, she was obsessed with werewolves in a kind of a a, a low-key uh, sort of, she was very attracted to that idea of monstrousness as well, I think. You know, she she was sort of fascinated by it, even as she was scared by it. So we had these things in common, you know. The Red Riding Hood story was one that she told me as a child. And then, of course, like, I went on and told it to my daughter without necessarily remembering the resonances, you know, with it, without thinking, oh, God, you know, am I being my mother here? Which, which is, you know, my terror and maybe my destiny as well. So there's kind of these, this sort of a two sides to your mother in a way where there's that drinking side and that dysfunction, but she was also very, uh, she advocated for you a lot and she really wanted you to get an incredible education. So she sent you to St. Angela's, which was this quite posh school and you're from the North side, quite a working class upbringing but she wanted you to go to the posh school so there was that always that for her as well Mm, yeah there really was and again it was only in the writing of the book that I realized sort of you know what that cost her in terms of she was a very shy person you know certainly when she wasn't drinking she was very shy and she was very reserved she'd had things happen in her life that I think wounded her and also meant that she was carrying around shame, feelings of shame, which made it hard for her to sort of come out of her shell sometimes. And when I think about in order to get me into St. Angela's, which, you know, kind of unbeknown to me at the time, there were other girls from the north side going there. They were starting to go there, you know, like it was opening up and it was possible for a working class girl from the north side to go, you know, to a sort of a fancy convent school in the in the city. But at the time for me, it felt like a massive leap because it was so massive for her and she had to go and sort of sit physically sit in front of the headmistress in order to secure a place for me there which she did you know and people who know Cork will know St Angela's is up the top of a very steep hill which you know listening to her talking about it was like you know she'd summited Everest to get up there but I think in lots of ways psychologically it was it was a big hurdle for her to get over but she did it you know, and she was very proud and, and and happy, you know, to have done it. Yeah, because and also she kind of put a lot into parenting that you came to understand more when you were writing the book. Like you heard stories about how much she used to sort of encourage your, your love of nature and that she, um, you know, she introduced you to books and cultural stuff that she loved as well. Mm. And so much of that, you know, was... Um, was news to me, Roisin. Like, I, I don't know where I thought I got it from, you know, but I, I think I had blocked out a lot of that stuff. You know, I lived, I have lived for most of my adult life about as far as you can physically and geographically get from where I started. And, and you know, I took pride in the idea of myself as a self-made woman and it was so humbling like it was such a land to go home to Cork at the end of her life and hear from the people who knew her best what she had done to sort of set my course that I never gave her and I never gave her any credit for it you know I really I mean I I think our relationship definitely got easier and certainly writing the book you know gave me so much more insight than I would have had otherwise but in lots of ways like and I don't want to be too maudlin saying this, but in lots of ways it was too late. You know, like I didn't, I, I wasn't able to sort of um, 
I wasn't able to give her that acknowledgement, but I think I was able to acknowledge her for other things, you know, other things she had given me and other ways in which she'd been, you know, she'd been a, an amazing mother. And that's kind of why I wrote the book in a way, because I, th- I I was thinking all this stuff is super specific to me and my mother, but I was hoping there might be a universality to that, like, you know, that we blame our parents, like for how we turn out or we don't give them enough credit for the good, you know, for the good stuff that comes down to us from them. I suppose your relationship with her was probably maybe at its worst during your teenage years, would you say? And when you started drinking and that became a problem for you at the beginning in your teen years, tell us about that time. Yeah, I mean, when I think about it, it's claustrophobia, you know, that I think about it. Like, I, I, it's funny, I've just been home in Ireland and, you know, spent some time in the family home. And it's so funny to be back there, especially to be back there jet lagged, you know, like it's it's like a waking dream. That's also kind of a waking nightmare, <laughs> you know, because these places have such power, like as as psychogeographies. But yeah, all of this is a sort of long winded way of saying the house was too small for both of us, I think, you know, especially as I because, you know, as I grew up and went to St. Angela's and and grew in my own confidence, I knew everything. You know, I I was a 15 year old who knew absolutely everything and was, in my opinion, smarter than her and more experienced than her. And, you know, what could she tell me? And also, I think I was very embarrassed by her. You know, I was just really, really embarrassed by her behavior. You know, people who live with um, binge drinking or, you know, problem drinking might relate to this because a lot of the time you know it's the it's not being able to predict what's going to happen you know like it might be a fine the day might be fine but also it might not and there's that sense I think of being on your nerves a lot of the time so for me I felt I was just very very conscious of her all the time and very aware that things could go could turn at any point, you know, without any um, without any warning. And then, you know, the less said, the better about when I started drinking, because I was, you know, I'd come home on holiday, whether it was Christmas or, you know, for a bit of time in the summer. And then I was sort of her squared, you know, like the volatility just went through the roof and you didn't know what was going to happen. And, and you know, I, I talk about some of that in the book, but I certainly wasn't making the situation any better. Talk about coming back to your house then now. I mean, you have siblings, obviously, and your father is a very, I find him quite a comforting presence in, in the book and, and <laughs> somebody that I was glad you had, even though, again, you probably didn't see it at the time, mm. but he was this kind of, I mean, he put up with a lot, but he also clearly loved your mother for all her for all her complications and for everything that went on. But is uh, who lives in the family house now? What's the story there? He's there. That It's his house. You know, he lives there. And my sister is actually there at the moment. You know, she's she's living there at the moment. And so um, when I came home with my daughter just recently, it was the four of us in there and, you know, assorted dogs and cats. You know, there's a, there's a lot of pet life going on there as well. So, um, you know, it was going back to and going back to that home without my mother in it. I was prepared for the strangeness and trying to be prepared for the grief of it as well. But I don't think anything does prepare you for that. You know, you have to kind of 
surfeit, I think. And yeah, every day was different. And you can't escape that claustrophobia in a way. It still lingers, I suppose, and, and the memories. And just going back to the, the interesting thing about you is even when you got, you know, dysfunctional with alcohol and all of that at school, you were a straight A student. You won a, a national prize for an essay, I think, when you're at college. You, you were you were brilliant. Um, and on the one hand, you were also sort of falling apart as well. When you went to a, a New Zealand, was it kind of, do you feel like it was an escape from everything? Is that what you were trying to do? I mean, you said it was the furthest place you could have gone. Oh, absolutely. You know, I did feel, and, and like this may be just pure teenage hyperbole, but, you know, I absolutely felt like Cork isn't big enough for both of us with my mother, you know, and I could have just gone to Dublin, I suppose, or, or like London. But, you know, I, I I went to New Zealand. That was where I ended up. And it did feel like an absolute clean slate in so many ways. You know, like it was it was very possible to invent myself there and to sort of, you know, chart my own course, which was why, again, it felt so ironic to be ending up you know, at a sort of an alcoholic rock bottom there because I felt like in one sense, like I'm so far away from where I started. But in another sense, I'm absolutely in the same place, you know, and that was that felt like a real cosmic irony. Mm -hmm. I, I was intrigued to see that you kind of the, the route to New Zealand was through Cafe Paradiso, which is one of my absolute favorite yes. restaurants. And you worked there for the lovely woman who ran it with, I suppose, with Dennis Cotter. Is that right? Was that? Yeah. Bridget, Bridget Healy used yeah. to be married to Dennis Cotter and Bridget ran the front of house in Cafe Paradiso. And it was really Bridget who sent me to New Zealand. And again, you know, in the book, I talk about sort of the belated realization that someone had been worried about me. You know, again, I think... I just felt bulletproof at that point. But, you know, she had been. But she also, I think, intuited that I'd have a good time there. And, you know, my experience at Cafe Paradiso was like the only vegetarian restaurant, the only place that had like a sliding door that opened up in the middle of a cork winter, you know, so people could get a bit of vitamin D and sunshine. And the walls were painted sky blue. And Bridget saying, New Zealand's like this, you know, <laughs> just go. It's all like this. And she kind of wasn't wrong. You know, it was a very bright place, you know, like bright water, bright sky. And, and, um, and yeah, she sent me off. Right. She sent me off really. And, 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 you know, I you went, I went away full of confidence. I do. And I just thanked her the other night, actually, because she and the funny thing is, you know, she still lives in Ireland now, and I live in New Zealand. So we sort of meet, we meet in Ireland and in New Zealand, you know, when we can in different parts of the world. It's great. So when you went to New Zealand, you were first working for like in a fine dining restaurant, kind of quite a posh restaurant. Um, and it, it was more buzzy. Okay. Like it was, it was definitely fancy, but yeah. it was, you know, one of those restaurants Roisin, where like all the sailors from the America's Cup came okay. and, you know, it definitely had a bit of a celebrity buzz to it in Auckland so it was fast it was more fast moving okay. than anything and else it, but it was great and it was one of your customers I think that sort of provided the link into media into the radio is that right mm. so, someone quite well known there was a couple of them so one of the guys behind the bar I had an idea in my head that I wanted to switch I'd taken a year off an MPhil at UCC in the history department doing 19th century gothic literature and I thought 
you know, maybe when I get back to Ireland, because I had a one year working holiday visa and I thought maybe when I get back, I might do something slightly more employable and try and get into journalism. And that postgrad at DCU, I'd looked it up and it said you needed experience, some kind of experience to be considered for it. And one of the guys who was making um, coffees at at, at the restaurant said you should go up to BFM which is a student radio station in Auckland um, and BFM was a sort of a disproportionately exciting and you know um, serious radio station given that it was ostensibly run by students you know there was a lot of really talented people there who many of whom went on into sort of grown-up broadcasting as well and so I, I started up there but at the same time there was an Irishman who um, who worked in television who used to come into the restaurant who brought me into the TV station just as a kind of an intern you know to see how that works and New Zealand's very small in the way that I suppose lots of places are very small, you know, it was a relatively small industry. And I got a few lucky breaks, you know, between one person and another. And, and um, I got a, a chance to be the newsreader on BFM, which was a scream, you know, like it was just we used to we used to like get three papers in the morning and write news stories out of them, you know, like <laughs> with pens and paper. Um, and it sort of went from there. You know, I had the great good fortune to get a slot the weekly slot interviewing the Prime Minister and it was Helen Clark at the time because the Prime Minister in New Zealand very, very smartly, very cannily has always done student media, you know, and had a weekly phone in. So that was how I got into sort of political interviewing and um, and that was where I got my broadcasting training and it was amazing training because it was live radio. You know, I did a little bit of television, but mostly radio and it was fab, you know, and as soon as I did it, then I was hooked. You know, I loved it. <laughs> and you, you rose really quickly through kind of quite, you know, a serious uh, position and everything and being in charge of people and, and being in charge of stuff. <laughs> but, but meanwhile, while all this was happening, your drinking was getting out of control. Yeah, it was. And, you know, it took a while. It took a while to really for the wheels to totally fall off. And part of that is because I think you do have stamina in your 20s. You know, like I was able to keep going and to be kind of functional. And I worked in a very, you know, I look back now and I see how permissive an environment that was. You know what I mean? We were doing breakfast radio and it was sort of you know, it was par for the course to have a few nights where you might roll straight in the next day, you know, and and start again. But eventually, you know, as especially as my work became more demanding, I think my anxiety increased. I couldn't do both. You know, I couldn't drink the way I had been drinking and continue to work because also it was quite it was a demanding job, you know, and um, and the drinking in order to sort of uh, deal with anxiety that doesn't work you know that's a disaster so yeah I mean in a in a relatively short space of time like I think by 2009 you know I was in a situation where I knew even if anyone else didn't know that I was kind of running out of road for what I was doing but at the same time and you know I was trying to convey this in the book because it's different now you know my life is different now and my perspective is different now but I think you know when you get to a point where you need to stop drinking when you love drinking the idea of stopping drinking it's just like someone saying oh go up and walk on the ceiling there why don't you 
You know, like, it's just like, you can't fight gravity. What? You know, this is insane. And so, and also, you know, I was in a situation where I didn't have a family. I didn't have, I wasn't in a significant relationship. You know, there was nobody telling me you need to stop drinking. I, you know, I'd skate around on thin ice in work situations, but fundamentally, so long as I could show up and do the job, I was okay. Um, But I knew, you know, I knew that things were getting unmanageable for me. And then, you know, that was the beginning of the end, really. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And just bringing your mum, Carol, back into it, did you, when you were skating on thin ice and doing all these things, did you think about her? Did you think about the similarities perhaps? And and how, like the book is called uh, Becoming My Mother's Daughter. <laughs> were you kind of going, oh my God, this is my worst nightmare. I'm becoming my mother. Do you know, I think I knew in the back of my head, like in that big, in that cupboard right up the back, like the maybe, but I'd shoved it up there as well. I, I so didn't think I was like her, you know, like I thought I've come to New Zealand, I got a career, I'm different, you know, I'm never going to be like her. So the denial was pretty strong. And also it just seemed so, again, like ironic or ridiculous because I felt like I had so much information about you know, drinking and about how not to be. And, and, and even though it was sitting there right under my nose, I really didn't feel like it had anything to do. I thought, I didn't think how she was had anything to do with me. Like those realizations were very, very painful. And I just felt like a fool, you know, I just felt like, what, how, you know, how can this be? How can this be happening? Given the context is so different, you know, thousands of miles away. Mm. But it was happening. And then and then one morning, one morning you just decided that was enough. You'd had enough. It wasn't a necessarily usually dramatic moment, which sometimes we think they have mm. to be. It was quite a, a gentle moment. It wasn't even a, the worst night of your life drinking or anything. You just you'd had enough. Totally. Like it was quite a successful night, to be honest. I'd made it home, you know, like I'd made it home. I didn't have to make phone calls finding my handbag or whatever it was, you know, I, I, I'd gotten away with it. But I just think by that point, you know, I'd had a couple of half-hearted goes at moderating or at sort of changing things around a bit. But this was different because I just, I was so tired, you know, I just thought I can't, I can't keep doing this. I'm exhausted, you know, and, and, and it really felt like, 
how do I it's very hard to explain I think because you know I don't like to think that I'm so confident now that you know that 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 part of my life has been settled and I don't have to go back to it you know I feel like this is something that I I live with on a daily basis but I do remember that morning feeling like I don't know where this is going to take me but I can't go back I can't I can't drink and what I did was initially I had small little goals you know I said I'm not going to drink until the end of the week I'm not going to drink until I move into the new house. You know, I had these little things where I never said, uh, you know, it'll be for a year or even that it'll be for a month. It was very small to begin with. And you also had had a couple of things happen. You mentioned uh, some photographs of you not in a good state had been published. Mm. And also you were plagiarizing stuff as part of your job. You were writing essays based off other people's work. You're very honest about that. Mm. So, So it was having effects in terms of your your working life. Yeah, it was. Absolutely. And, you know, with those things, I think, you know, it is a classic sort of alcoholic story that you can say, oh, well, those things didn't happen because I was drinking, but they always happened when I was drinking, you know. So there again, there was that voice in my head that kept saying, this isn't normal. You know, this isn't this isn't right. This isn't how it, how normal people do it, you know, because I had lots of friends who partied and I was part of that group, you know, but things were happening in my life that had taken me so far away from where I, you know, where I wanted to be and who I wanted to be. And, you know, when it came time to write the book, I, I, I was very conscious that I still feel shame and I still feel guilt and I still feel pain about some of those things. But I also know that they don't define me. And I know that, you know, part of it is like these are this is my story, you know, like and I get to I get to tell it and it's hard to tell it in some parts. I mean, more than anything, it's that relationship with my mother that's hard to tell in some parts. But I also think, you know, my favorite thing in memoir is when people are honest and candid and give you the whole story, right? Because, you know, I, I did make a decision when when I realized what I was writing, because that took a while to, to realize what it was, um, that I would be as honest as I as I could be, you know, that I just write it all out and not think about it being published and not think about anything that might happen further down the track, but just to be be as honest as I could be. And um yeah. And and I was happy with that, you know. It wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be, actually. It's <laughs> more enjoyable than you think. <laughs> and when you um, came back then for the summers, that you came back to Ireland and you suddenly weren't drinking, because before you mentioned your kind of volatility and the fact that you'd almost be the two of you together and behaving in a similar way, and now you weren't drinking. How did that change the dynamic between you and your mother? Mm. Well, I, I mean, it was kind of boring at the start, because we wouldn't have like the same um, dynamic. And, you know, I was I was as invested in that in my own way as she was. And what I realized early on was that so much of life and I'm not I'm not generalizing about all of Ireland, but maybe in my family or my context in Ireland, so much happened in the pub, you know, and it felt really lonely to not be part of that. Like I'd sort of, you know, say goodbye and sort of wave them off, or, you know, and there was a whole lot of stuff that was happening that I wasn't 
part of. And that was fine for a while. And I guess what happened then was, you know, as I went on and became more confident in myself and and more confident in where I was at, it became easier to do other things. And also, but then I could go to the pub as well if I wanted to, you know, like my dad turned 60 and I came home to surprise him. And, you know, I've lots of photos from that night and it was fun, you know, like it was a fun, because I mean it's just fun. Like it's a different kind of fun in Ireland and the crack is different, you know? And I, I, I sort of, I don't, I don't feel like I miss out on that now just because I don't drink. But with my mother, I think the biggest shift was becoming a mother myself, you know, like our relationship was quite good. And then I had my daughter and it changed again, you know, suddenly, I was not the focus of the relationship anymore. You know, I just became this bystander and the attention shifted. And when I started writing about my mother a few years back, that was the first, those were the first moments I actually wrote about because it was so, I felt it so strongly. You know, I felt the peace and the ease that came with not having to have that antagonism between us anymore you know and because I think she changed too there was a softness to her and a kind of a I think you know not to be too sort of heteronormative about it like I'm not saying every woman needs to have a baby so you get on better with your mother but you know for us it it just took the tension out of things you know and my daughter was a baby and babies are so you know they're just pure potential so I think everyone took a breath yeah, and I think what what's emerges from the, in the book is this sort of getting to know each other better. I think because you've had a daughter, so there's one time when she starts talking about um your grandmothers and her her mother particularly, and you find out things about. Tell us about your two grandmothers because I think they there's a thread to them as well in the story. Mm, there is, and part of writing this book, I guess, was I wanted to place myself in the context of generations of women. You know, it wasn't just me and my mother because we weren't formed out of thin air. And, you know, the truth is, I don't know an awful lot about my maternal and my paternal grandmothers. You know, my my dad's mum, Kitty, Catherine, she had 12 kids, you know, and was busy, like was just this incredibly busy woman and a really warm grandmother. You know, I really I just remember her house as being like the center of the world for her children and for grandchildren. And some of them lived down there. And, you know, she was she was absolutely that figure of, you know, of warmth and sort of motherliness. And she died, you know, she died tragically. She drowned herself when I was 14. And, you know, I talk about that in the book, how there weren't words for it. You know, there weren't words for the trauma of that for my father, for, you know, I, I, I won't speak for the rest of her children because, you know, they're they're all still alive. And, you know, that's their story. But certainly for us as a family, that was a powerful trauma, you know, that, um, you know, that that touched all of us. And um, really writing the book was the first time I've even thought about that. And what I'm amazed about is how much of it I've blocked out, you know, like how much of it I can't even remember. I had to sort of ask questions of people and look up things to even know the dates and the time of that. Um, And then, 
on my mother's side, her mother, who, again, I didn't know very well, except what I had been told was that she adored me, you know, and would babysit me. But she also adored the family dog. So she'd kind of babysit both of us at the same time. And we'd have to share the Maltesers. Um, and it was really when I was um, at home with a newborn, you know, I had my daughter and my mother would ring and we'd sit there and we'd talk and she'd tell me, she just told me things about her mother that made me think, oh my God, I think she had like really bad postnatal depression. You know, that's what it sounds like to me. And, you know, she was telling me these stories just about how she kind of, it sounded to me, hadn't been able to mother her, you know, like in, in as a newborn, you know, like she just hadn't been able to sort of do that to, 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 yeah. And my mother speaking about it was so understated, like she was so sort of, well, that's just how it was, you know, that's how it was then. And she didn't have any sort of malice or resentment about that, but it blew my mind, you know, like as a new mother myself to think about that as being my mother's experience. And I was also thinking about, you know, the two children my mother had before she had me. And well, tell us about that because you describe yourself in the book as kind of the eldest of, depending on which version of your family history you want to talk about, the eldest of four or the middle of six, because like you say, your, your mother had two children before and spoke to you only about it when she was very, very drunk. It seemed to come up. Yeah. And it would come up in a very you know, just a really trauma, traumatic and traumatizing kind of way. Like there was just so much pain around their loss, but also it was a secret. You know, I was told it was a profound secret that we we must never talk about really. Um, and that was when I was quite young. You know, we all knew about this from from quite a young age. Well, certainly, certainly me and, you know, my two next in age siblings. And, you know, it was a real, it was just that secret at the heart of the family, you know, that um, explained as, as I got older, I felt like this explains a lot about my mother or this is a context in which it's important to understand her. But I didn't really feel it on any kind of level until again, I had a baby myself and there was something about how that affected my body, you know, like that experience of breastfeeding, that experience of postpartum sort of soreness that for some reason I I kept thinking about my mother, you know, I kept thinking about her experiencing these feelings, these pains. And, you know, one child was adopted and the other baby died. And I thought about that, you know, in relation to the, the physical experience of giving birth. And I became kind of obsessed about it, you know, like I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then while I was writing the book, I think in 2021, the report into the mother and baby homes came out in Ireland. And, you know, I was reading about this from a distance and my mother wasn't in one of those homes, you know, thank God. But her experience of being, you know, as they call it, like an unmarried mother had carried so much shame and so much stigma. And certainly with the second pregnancy, you know, she she was in sort of in peril, you know, she nearly died. And reading those experiences, again, at a distance, you know, because I remember it was summer in New Zealand and I was sitting in a parked car in Wellington when the um, when the report was first released. I think there was, you know, the um, the sort of excerpt they do at the beginning. The um, And I read it and I, I was just so powerfully triggered by that, you know, that it it 
if it came into the book, you know, I think if my mother hadn't been in the book already, she was going to be in it at that point, you know, because it it colored my experience of mothering and and parenting and, you know, how much, how I felt about being a mother and that sort of, you know, all of those feelings of physical and, and yeah, just, just that experience. Well, and there's one moment I think where she talks to you about, um, sort of out of the blue as you're sitting with your own baby daughter she talks to you about getting an epidural on her first pregnancy her first baby and the one she had to give up for adoption and it was it's kind of an incredible moment really where she seems to open up Mm. and you can't even believe that words are coming out of her mouth in a way because as you said it's such a profound secret yeah and you know it was funny because we had a little baby between us you know, like Eve, when my daughter was 10 weeks old, we brought her to Ireland, which in retrospect seems like madness. Do you know, I remember being ready to board the flight to Dubai and thinking this is just insane. You know, we're going to be hurtling through the skies <laughs> with this brand new child. And, you know, when we were in Ireland, um, we were staying close by near to the family home, but not in it. And I'd walk up early in the morning and it was on one of those early morning walks. You know, she was the only one awake and we had my daughter on the sofa between us you know like she was just sitting in between us and I think I'd taken off her baby grow because she was a bit hot and so she's you know kicking her little legs away and and she told me the story you know she said because I think I was talking about my epidural you know like I also wanted her to know that I had sort of you know I'd I'd organized my birth the way I wanted it and you know I wanted a bit of um I wanted a bit of I don't know what for that, you know, I wanted her to be proud of me. And then she told me her story and it was, you know, we weren't looking at each other. We were sitting beside each other. So we were sort of sitting parallel. And again, she told it in a very simple, very almost casual way. And I just couldn't believe that we were talking about this, you know, that we were talking about this finally and that the sky wasn't falling in. You know, and I also, for the first time, I guess, Roisin, you know, I felt heartbroken for her and angry, you know, really angry as well, because, you know, this is living memory, you know, like it's not it's not a long time ago. And the way she was talking about it, you know, there was no dignity. There was no um, it was pain. You know, it was a painful experience in every way. And to have to give away that that baby because of the times that we're in it we're talking I suppose early 70s at that point and it's interesting when her sister her sister then tells you about the fact that after after um that baby was born and she had to give her up and kind of there was no really more talking about it anyone else who got pregnant um and they weren't married they they didn't give up their children they saw what it what it had done to your mother and the effect was that they kept hold of their babies even if they weren't married so it's that kind of uh fascinating difference between two Ireland's in a way you know yes the, the change yes. that happens and it's a hinge yeah it's a hinge moment isn't it because again like the 70s weren't the 60s and the 80s were different again you know and and in many ways like my mother was like a modern Irish woman you know and um and I grew up in the Ireland of the 90s you know, we had divorce coming in, you know, things were, I remember the Good Friday Agreement, you know, and I went to university, you know, there were so many things in my life that were different to her life. But I think, you know, she she was part of that generation of women who experienced terrible things and, you know, and great shame, 
and great shame. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that when we understand Carol in, in her totality and what she'd been through, I mean, losing one child who died, having to give up another one, then having to not speak about it and just hold all that inside, you kind of uh, you see that she was in trauma and, you know, the way she, perhaps she dealt with that was uh, hiding away from people, sort of mis- misanthropy, misanthropy that you, you describe or your brother describes about her and, and then the alcohol. But I want to bring you back to a moment in the, the book, which I thought was very interesting, because even though your relationships gets better, you're still she's still a source of antagonism for you. And when you come back with um, your very young baby, you find that your mother's filled a room with this incredible array of toys, uh, mostly for older children. And they're all from secondhand shops. Some of the toys are broken or just completely inappropriate. Like there's a statue of a Native American holding a child and you kind of get very angry with her. And the sort of echoes of that past frustrations with her as a mother. And you really do lose it. Like, but it's sort of to me in that, in that, all that stuff that she accumulated for your, it was the only way she, she knows or it's how she knew how to, how to be a grandmother or to be something for Eve, your daughter. But it was, it was really mm. frustrating for you at the same time. Oh, it was infuriating, you know, and, and it was, it was just the fact that like, obviously I'm coming from New Zealand. Obviously, I cannot take this stuff back. You know, I think I was flying Ryanair first before I was, you know, getting on the big plane. So I was like, I can't bring this stuff anywhere near a plane. There's, you know, 40 kgs of baggage here because it was a lot of stuff. And I think what made me so furious is like, as you say, she, you know, she, she'd really tried and there was so much of it, but it was so entirely kind of unsuitable for for what I needed or what Eve needed, you know, and it felt like a metaphor in a way, you know, like for just not understanding because, you know, a lot of the, for me anyway, and I, I don't want to speak for like every immigrant, you know, every person who leaves Ireland, but, you know, what what always used to do a number on me when I came back to Ireland was as soon as I, you know, came through customs at Cork Airport, it was as though my life in New Zealand or anywhere else ceased to exist, you know, and I just had to come home and be the person and be my mother's daughter, you know, and and that used to sort of drive me mad. And I think those presents kind of crystallized it. But I also think like, you know, I've had people, when people talk to me about Grand in New Zealand, they never talk to me about my mother. They talk to me about their mothers. And I love that, like, or their fathers or their grandfathers or whoever, you know, like whoever it makes them think of. And I do think there's something in that moment about like parents trying to connect with us and trying to sort of give us what they what they what they want, what they have to give us or what they think they need to give us. And it not being what we need, you know, it being actually more baggage, you know. Also, I'm not very proud of that. Like, you know, I was really churlish and I did keep some of that stuff and I take it, I kept the books and, you know, I kept, I kept a few things and they are precious because, you know, as soon as your parent dies, I think you keep everything, you know, because you're never getting, you're not getting anything else. But, you know, I think it, it is that frustration, you know, of the, I don't know what you'd call it, like things getting lost in translation. Yeah, because you write uh, very well about that. You say some women have mothers who come and stay with them after they have their babies, who clean the house and make dinner and do the washing. Mothers to talk to about breastfeeding and nappy rash and reflux. I look down and see she's put two giant bars of Cadbury whole nut chocolate into the toy buggy. Not just family size, even bigger. So it's, it's that kind of... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't even know where she found those. <laughs> and the kid is nine weeks old. Nine weeks old, ten weeks old, baby. Yeah. yeah, I think I ate one. Of, I ate one of them. Definitely. I'm glad. <laughs> that was just but stressy. Thing. When, when you look back at that now, do you think with what had happened to her and because of her drinking or whatever, she just she wasn't able to see things the way, say, I'm putting it in inverted commas, a normal sort of uh, grandmother or mother would have reacted. Like, what do you mm. put it down to? Personality or all of the above? I mean, what, what's your understanding yeah, of it I, now? I, I, I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to say D, like all of the above. Because I think she also had a particular personality, you know, regardless of trauma yeah. or like what, what happened to her. Like she, she was a particular person, a particular kind of person. She was never going to be a textbook mammy. Probably like I might not be either, you know, like she was always going to do things her way. And I accept that about her. And I guess one of the things I realized as well, again, belatedly, is like just because people don't love us the way we think they should love us doesn't mean they don't love us. You know, like I I do feel loved and I do feel like, you know, I have a lot of relationships in my life where sometimes they don't look exactly how I think they should look, you know, but that doesn't mean there's not support there or love there. And, And I think a lot of the work in life is about kind of accepting people for who they are and but also sort of advocating for what you want as well. And then sometimes if you're lucky, you might get a middle ground. You know, you might get something that is sustaining and good, um, but but never looks like how you think it's going to look. I mean, the, you, I've just talked about it earlier that you came home when she was uh, dying, essentially, and you were told it would be a few days mm. and then 10 days later, there she was still alive. And, and it was a very difficult time because the COVID cases were rising. You left your daughter behind at this point. Um, so you're in this horrible position where waiting for your mother to die on the one hand, but knowing you need to get get back as well. And and indeed, you did go back. But before you went, you have this amazing moment with your mother in her hospital bed. And um, I don't know, would you mind if I read a bit of it or would, what would you feel of about course. that? Of course, yeah. I mean, I should ask you I'd to read it. I'd be happy if you, yeah. Have you read it yourself out loud anyway? I've read it once, Roisin. I read it for the audio book and it was very hard actually. And I, I managed to do it, you know, I did it, but I knew I probably couldn't do it again, you know. Um, but I'm, I'm happy for you to read it or to read whatever excerpt from it you want. Or well, I'll, I'll, I'll have. Would you mind if I did? Because I think uh, to, to me, this no. is really. I and I hope it would encourage people to read your memoir because I think this gets to the nub of kind of, um, like you say, the universality of of mother daughter relationships, which are so massive and so big and complex for many people. Even though yours is your own specific story, but I think it touches on a lot of other people's as well. Um, so this is a scene in the in the hospital. You're you're going to go home back to New Zealand. You're not going to see her again. This is the last time you're going to see her. And that's what this first piece begins with. This is the last time I will see my mother. I try to be very clear about this in my head so I won't forget anything. I can't believe I'm really going, but my ticket to the airport coach is on my phone downloaded. How can I go? She's still alive. It's not finished. I can't go, but I miss my daughter. I'm frightened of not being allowed back in with this virus spreading. I take her in my arms again, her little pink skull against my shoulder, her plush dressing gown in the ice cream colours, her face so changed and scary. The big black bruise blooms in the crook of her arm she puts around me. I reach both arms around her and they overlap behind her back. There's so little of her. 
I love you, I love you, I love you. My heart beats it out strong and true. And all those things I said and did, the times I threw her vodka down the sink and slapped her face and bit her and said, I hate you. They are all with us too. You came out of me, she used to scream. You came out of me, you did, as I tore the thin freckled skin of her forearms. Gouged out tracks in her with my nails when I was 12, 13, full of the strength of hating her. I will get down on my knees now and climb back up inside her. I am yours, the first one you kept, the one you had at Christmas. I am yours, you bless me each time I walk out of your hallway. I am yours, I love you, you are in me, you are inside me. I hit you, I beat you, I shook you, I am sorry. I love you, mammy, I knew you. Anyway, I'm okay reading it now, Noel. but when I read that the first time, I had to actually have a good cry for, say, 10 minutes. Um, and I don't know what it is about that particular moment, but it just got me. And I imagine I imagine it's something it almost came out of you when you wrote it. Mm. Oh, thank you for saying that. I'm sorry about the crying, but... No, it's you. good That's... because obviously I was just thinking about myself and my own stuff. You know, it's yeah. like those brilliant pieces of writing that just seem to bring something from nowhere into your space, even though you're reading someone mm. else's story. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm, yeah. And I think that moment, you know, of saying goodbye to my mother was so surreal, you know, that that I tried to remember everything as vividly as I could. And I also felt massively unprepared for it. You know, I guess that no rehearsal moment. And I didn't know how I'd do it, you know, and, and I was able to do it. You know, I was able to sort of come through it. And I do see that kind of like that morning, you know, that I I knew I'd had my last drink, hopefully, um, as a as an operation of grace, you know, as something that was bigger than me. Um, but also, I guess when I was writing it, I was thinking about everyone. I was just thinking we all have a version of this or we're going to have to because we're all our parents children you know and I don't know everyone's version is different and I felt very lucky more than anything I felt so lucky that I got to say goodbye you, you know did. and also that you know yeah I did and she was conscious and she remembered and you know I I, I feel very very lucky about that because like I said I thought I was going home for a funeral I know. And there's just another little bit where you, you talk about this shortly afterwards. To my utter surprise, I know what to do now. I know what to say and what to do and how to let these last few moments play out between us. Everything is bigger than us and only us at the same time. And there's, and there's that feeling again of having been allowed for a moment to see into a powerful mystery. I love you. You are amazing. She doesn't say anything. I don't need her to. But it's that I'm I'm so glad you had that grace moment where suddenly oh, despite all the complications and all the stuff and all the baggage it felt very clear for you at the end there how to be with your mother yeah yeah which was the hardest thing in my life I never knew how to be with my mother I never knew you know and it was always difficult it was always hard so the beautiful irony of that like was just I, I was reeling from it you know and I remember I was going up on the train to Dublin and there was an Aldous Harding song that I was listening to on repeat you know and it was about you know it, it's the barrel and it's about you know the braid that you stay in as a child and a mother and I just couldn't believe it like sometimes the algorithm is spooky but <laughs> it's terrifying you know and yeah. I just sat in the back of the bus and cried and but it wasn't I wasn't unhappy tears I mean that sounds that sounds 
weird. But, you know, I just, I, I did. I felt very, very grateful as well as everything else. Yeah, you, you were know, able, to, well you were able to, to make peace with everything it feels like. It does feel quite like so profound. Um, you had to go mm. back and I don't know how long it was after that, Noel, that your mother actually did die. How, how soon was it? I think it was about a week. You know, and I felt terribly guilty about leaving as well. I mean, you touched on that, but, you know, it was my sister really who did all of the organisation and all of the stuff that comes with that. And I knew that I'd be leaving her to that, you know, like I knew that I had to go because I could see the cases were rising. And, you know, I knew New Zealand went into lockdown, I think, 48 hours after my mother died. And so... You know, when I watched her funeral on Zoom, I think we were in lockdown by then, you know, like the whole world had changed by that point. It was it was just an extra layer of weirdness, you know, on top of everything else. It was like being in a dream. And that's kind of where the the book ends. But I mean, it's just there's so much in it. I mean, it's like you say, it's it's your story, but it's also very much your mother's story. But I think it's the story of women in Ireland, too, from those two Ireland's we talked about and how far we've come, but also the kind of intergenerational stuff that can follow us and shape us so much through our lives and yeah. how you've come to terms with that really and managed to beautifully articulate it. I think it's it's everyone should read it, really. Oh, thank you for saying that. And, you know, the thing I didn't put in the book, I said, you know, my mom never voted. But I remember, you know, and I know you've been so active, Roisin, around, you know, the repeal campaign for the Eighth Amendment. She did vote. She voted for that. And I remember her saying to me, you know, I was in New Zealand and she said, you know, I voted for you. And that was so, you know, oh, my goodness, I couldn't believe it. Mm. But, you know, I I was thinking of the generations of women who came before, but I was also trying to be really tight in the focus of just me and my mother, because that's the story I know. You know, I I, I knew that if I could just sort of keep keep it on her, then I might find out something as well, you know, that I might sort of, you know, and that was the story I wanted to tell. I found it massively enjoyable to write about her actually like way more so than (laughs) you might think looking at the um you know looking at the the sort of you know summary of it on paper it was actually massively enjoyable to write it was Uh, great and I should say as well it's very funny I mean that quirk sense of humor and your mother was a very funny woman like very smart and hilarious as well like you know I think at one point somebody says uh, oh look you know when on her deathbed and Noelle's come all the way from New Zealand and she goes she didn't want I'm just putting on your mother's accent. I'm sure she didn't speak like that, but that's my version of course. She did. She actually did say it just like that, Rasheen. And we were just talking about it the other day. I mean, she was just she didn't miss a beat. Know. You know, when the doctor was asking her to go to the hospice and he was like, you know, please, please go to hospice. You know, it's it's so lovely, Carol. And she says, So why don't you go? <laughs> and this exactly and this I mean and we didn't talk about her love of smoking, very committed smoker and you're having your yeah, first yeah, yeah. Dance in France at your wedding to your lovely husband John, and uh, and then it basically interrupts you so that John can go off and get her a, a pack of cigarettes. And like you're trying to say, it's not. I thought, really- it, was, I thought it was a medical emergency. <laughs> I was like, oh god, we're going to have to get someone airlifted, and it was like she was out of fags. So. <laughs> I mean, there's this. I'll give it back to him. I know there's this thing running through the book, like you're thinking all the time. God, she's so selfish. But in another way, it's just this kind of, again, her personality, just a very much like determined in whatever she wants to do. She's just going to do it, isn't she? Yeah. 
That's exactly right. Um, but uh, the other thing I want to say to you before you go is uh, on the front of the book, there's this picture of you, but I thought it was your mother. I, th- I thought for ages, and until I've just done, I realise it's you on the cover, but you look so like her. It's actually incredible. And it's an amazing, I mean, I love that ambiguity of that, of that cover. And, you know, it was one of those little miracles. My sister found that photo. She was cleaning out my mother's house you know, um, after she died and she she WhatsApped it to me in the middle of the night um, because it's a Polaroid from a photo shoot that I'd done for a New Zealand magazine that I sent my mother. I sent it to her. They gave me one of the Polaroids and I had no memory. I had no memory of the shoot and no memory of the Polaroid until Sarah sent it over. And I love it. I love it because I do look like her in the photo. And, you know, it's black and white and kind of impressionistic. But I also love that I had been keeping in touch, you know, like I had been sending her my clippings or whatever, because I wanted her to be impressed. You know, I wanted to show her that that I was having a great life. And, you know, and I wanted her to have the the photo so that was amazing it was so good to um to have that returned yeah and what just on before you go what do your family think of the book I I mean it's had a great reception in New Zealand especially here as well it's been acclaimed all over the place which is must be wonderful and gratifying but what do your family think of your book oh god um I think I, you know, my sister and my dad, I sent them the manuscript when I was writing it and said, you know, just after I'd finished the first draft. And I said, I'll change anything if you want me to change it, you know, and I was so buoyed up by their response. You know, they were so supportive and they were they they just, you know, my sister said I can hear Mammy's voice and that remains the single best review I've ever had. You know, it is just I'm I'm just so grateful for that and I guess you know for my wider family I think it is a difficult thing in some ways because it's exposing and I think you know it goes against the grain certainly maybe across the generations to talk about this stuff you know so I appreciate that that can be difficult you know and and it's been interesting you know I've been so grateful and honoured to have the book come out in Ireland, you know, because that was always my hope for it. But at the same time, it brings it close to home, right? <laughs> like, you know, even, you know, talking about my school days, all of those things, you know, it has brought a sense of kind of exposure with it. But, you know, fundamentally, I think I've I've just been bowled over by the level of support and generosity like I'd hate to be written about I think like, I would really I would really struggle with it Roisin so you know my family have shown again like terrific grace I think what about your brothers well you know I think that my siblings are all in different places about after my mother's death I'm not sure they're ready to talk about it with me you know to I, I don't know and that's all right too, you know. I've been absolutely fine with that, you know. If they if they had wanted to read it, that would be fine. I don't know whether they have or not. So you know, it's it's different for everyone. Mm. And what's your next book going to be, Noel? <laughs> oh yeah, um, slow is what it's going to be. <laughs> um, I'm writing about Dracula, you know, I'm writing about vampires and I'm writing about sort of the vampire myth in relation to obsession and addiction and sex 
um, because it's been in my head for 30 years, you know, and it finally feels like time to to get it out. And it's nonfiction, you know, it's another kind of memoir, but with a bit more maybe literary um sort of a look a look at that novel and how it how it came to be and why you know just thinking about why it's been so powerful and such a part of the culture over the last 120 years so it's quite fun well and also by an Irishman as well so that gives you a, yes, a good link a Dublin man yeah yes, down the road from by here Sligo. Clontarf really yeah yeah oh amazing yeah. I was there the other day I went to Dublin Castle to his old workplace and oh sort great of did the tourist thing, fascinating you know, man touch really. the stones yeah Amazing man. I love reading Joe O'Connor's book about him in, in London. Shadow Play, yeah, yes. So it was good. it was wonderful. Such a beautiful novel. Well, listen, um, I hope you're not going to fall out with any of your family because of this book, because it's too, too good a thing for, for anyone to fall out with. But I think it is difficult getting so close to the bone with family stuff. Um, and hopefully any tension will ease as time goes on, if there is any. Uh, but it's just... You just hope, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's such an incredible book. Uh, I'll be recommending it to everyone. I'm going to recommend it as one of my summer reads in our new book club, because even though it is, there's a lot of dark stuff in it. It's very funny. It's written exquisitely and there's a lot of that humour there as well. And um, thank you so thank much. Thank you for, so much. For you're very welcome. Thanks for pleasure. coming on to talk to us about it. Thank uh, you so much. And thanks for putting up with my dodgy Wi-Fi from Spain. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> All right. All the best. Thank you. Bye. That was Noelle McCarthy there and her book is called Grand, Becoming My Mother's Daughter. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast or by email thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. We love hearing from you. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.